0: everyone, welcome back to the Crim Academy where we are criminally academic. My name is Jen and I'm here with my co-host Jose.
1: Thanks Jen, I'm Jose.
0: <laughs> and today we're speaking to criminological theory scholar and our mentor and colleague, Dr. Kyle Thomas.
1: Kyle is an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of Colorado Boulder. His research interests are in offender decision-making, peer influence, and testing criminological theories. Kyle received his PhD in criminology and criminal justice from the University of Maryland in 2015, and before coming to Boulder, he was an assistant professor at the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Thank you for joining us, Kyle. Thank you for having me. I hate
2: introductions, and I hate hearing myself and seeing myself, and so there's a lot to overcome to be here, but (laughs) thanks for having me.
1: Well, and we're glad you sent us one because we're going to draft one up for you. It, it probably would have been the entire episode. Jose <laughs> <Not laughs> so was
0: very prepared to draft you an introduction. He was getting excited about it.
2: <laughs>
0: oh. All right, so before we get started, just kind of an overview of what this episode will cover is first we're just going to talk about theory in general, starting with some questions just about what is theory good for? And why do dying theories keep coming back? And those kinds of questions. Then we'll move on to discuss one of the papers that Kyle has recently had published on rational choice models of desistance, talking about what the paper was and then the main findings and then kind of a Q&A. And then from there, we'll go into our debunking myth section by talking about debates that people have perpetuated in criminology about theory. In order to get Kyle's perspectives about these topics. So, Jose, I'll pass it over to you to start.
1: Yeah, so I guess let's start with the big question that Jen mentioned. Is, Kyle, so what's theory good for? Why should we use theory in our research? Well, theory is everything, I think. Everything is some relation
2: to technological theory. I don't want to give the sophomore an answer here, like intro to theory classes, but. Theories help you organize observations in the real world, helps explain findings that you might see empirically. In in theory, theory should help with prediction in terms of like, for instance, like how crime rates might change over time, whether we expect certain individuals upon release from prison or whatever to be more or less likely to recidivate. That's a theory, just I view theory really as being something that helps organize and make sense of sort of like the world that we observe in data and things kind of that.
1: And so what would you say or how would you try to convince someone that's so-called atheoretical? So I guess in our field, that would be like the real heavy criminal justice people. <laughs> well, I do think that there
2: are, there are some people who I think dislike theory or find it uninteresting, interesting. And I can understand that I, I sort of have certain areas that I don't find particularly interesting myself. So we all kind of have our own views and likes and dislikes and, and whatnot however i don't think i don't think theory is irrelevant for anyone right and so the implication and you sort of actually more explicitly stated it towards the end of like people who are interested in more like practical policy stuff their policy and practice and all that stuff is theoretically driven right so you think about things like the u.s criminal justice system being explicitly rooted in deterrence for the most part and to a lesser extent, but still there, rational choice principles, at that. In terms of people who are doing things that are like program designs, things like that, often you'll find that those things are all rooted in theory, or if they're not necessarily explicitly rooted in theory from the get go, theory makes sense of their findings. I've heard, I've heard discussions in the past, or even been part of conversations, where people are doing an evaluation of a program and they'll say things like, oh, I found this. No, no effect or I found this a, f- a certain effect and I don't know what, how to make sense of it. And I think oftentimes, as someone who's really interested in theory and reads a lot about it, I'll say, well, it makes perfect sense if you draw on X theory or whatever, right? And so I think no one's necessarily atheoretical and it's, all been, it's always beneficial to, to study theory, like I said earlier, to help make sense of the world. Right, help make like, sense of things that you're finding. Ideally, right, you, you see this all the time is policy should be theoretically driven, right? And so we want to see that. But it makes sense. I, I mean, like, I think theories help also hopefully push policies in certain ways as well, right? I think about things like deterrence, which I know was like a controversial theory in some respects, but people always bring up the concerns of increasing sentence lengths in the 70s and the impact that's had on incarceration rates. But we knew from deterrence theory from long ago. If you read the, the Korea talking about things like certainty matters more, right, than, than severity of punishment. And severity is actually proportions, right? Uh, the proportionality of the punishment, not the actual outright severity of it itself. And so, I think that when you're thinking of theory that way, it helps make sense of policy, and hopefully helps make policy better. So, plus, sense. it's interesting, right? It's fun to read, and it's interesting, and at least interesting debates.
0: To some people. I mean, I find it interesting, but I think, so when I think of like, criminal justice, you know, a lot of times they don't get training in criminological theory. So what would you, do you have any recommendations to people who are more focused in policy and practice who haven't brought theory into their research before? You know, how do they start? Where would they start? That's a big question. But. It is a
2: big question. <laughs> it's tough one to answer. I think where to start is, I mean, like, I, I have a lot of friends who I'm very close with and a lot of respectful who just tell me they hate theory and they're, they're, they don't like to yeah. incorporate their thing. Like I said, I think sometimes you have to, I, I think the theory makes sense of things that might on the face seem like illogical or nonsensical. And I mean, in terms of where to start, like, I hate saying this because it sounds such a cliche and cheap answer, but read, right? Yeah. Like, pick up a book. I mean, there's different levels of theory, though, too, right? In terms of you don't need to get into the weeds of theory if you're not trying to test chronological theories in, in sort of intense ways, so to speak. But it's good to know basics of theories, I think, and I think it's just general. Most everyone, I think, should have some intro theory class under the belt,
1: I would hope at least, but what do I know?
0: Did you have theory? I yeah, did. You did?
1: Yeah. So I came from a criminal justice department and yeah, we had our mandatory intro to theory class, but there was also plenty of people where it was like, if your work has theory, great. If it doesn't, that's fine too. Yeah. Yeah. All right. What? So I don't
2: disagree. I mean, honestly, like do, do people need theory. I think people should know it in the same way. You know, hopefully, when you go, if you get a PhD, if that's people's goals, or whatever, you should have comprehensive understanding of certain things. I don't know policing stuff all that well, but I think I know b- basics of it. Um, I think theory should be, this, you know, people should know the basis of it, you know, if they're doing strict policy type stuff.
0: Okay. So moving on to our next like, main question. There are quite a few theories in criminology, to yes. put it simply. And so a lot of these theories have gone away over previous time periods and they're coming back or have come back. And so why do these so-called dying theories keep coming back? What is well, the reasoning for this?
2: It's funny that you bring up the how many theories we have in criminology. It was... Matza, who called us, who talked about crimp theory as being an embarrassment of riches, where we have a lot of theories that don't explain very much. Then I always think about the Colvin and Agnew Reader, which is kind of like a classic book, in and it gets thicker and thicker every single edition, right? So more theories are being added, and none are getting taken away, which I think leads into your question. There's Bob Bursick, I think, who so he quoted somebody else. I can't remember exactly. But it, and I believe this was in, in relation to social disorganization theory. We talked about, you could apply it in theories more generally, about theories being like herpes, is once you think they're gone, they pop back up and they come back. And so you see a lot of crim theories, I think, sort of fall out of favor. They don't become all that popular. They're not all that popular. And then they they'll get a rise and kind of like make a comeback. I don't think, no theories actually die, right? That's the whole point. And the reason is no theory dies is there's always going to be someone out there the number of people I think depends on the theory, who a certain theory makes sense to them, right? And so we often talk about the, the qualities of a good theory. And there's always people talk about things like explanatory power and logical consistency and all this stuff. But I think one of the ones that I think is most salient for me is sentimental relevance, right? Like, does the theory feel good to you? And so there's always going to be people who certain theories that might not be popular at time, it still feels good to them, makes sense to them. And they'll work, continue to work on that. So the reason I think theories don't die, so to speak, is because most theories of crime are designed around the facts of crime. Right. And so this is true in crime, right? Most theories that were designed, developed after the data had already come out and told us what correlates strongly with criminal offending. And so you'd be an idiot, for instance, to design a theory that, ex- that says elderly people commit more crime than adolescents, right? And so all these theories, most theories already have this in place, right? The, the theories are already designed to explain these facts of crime because they build it around it, which makes it difficult to falsify, I think, right? So the theories will go away, right? And the other thing about theories and why they go away and why they come back, I think can be two different explanations, but they're related, right? A lot of theories go away, I think just simply because of what else is going on in the world and science at the time, right? So you saw individual-level theories really start to gain momentum in the 50s and 60s when surveys started becoming a really popular thing. Mm. So as a result, you saw community-level structural explanations become less popular at the time, right? Then you see other theories come back as other scientists do, right? And so one that's come back a lot. Recently, there's like theories of decision-making in crime. You see, it seems like every issue of criminology has some sort of test of choice theories to some extent. Well, it happened to coincide with the rise of behavioral economics and in the, in the sciences more general, I think, where people will be interested in people making poor decisions, essentially. And so as you saw other fields start to do it, you see criminology do it, too. And so they come back. I think labeling theory, which sort of went away... In the 70s for a bit there was like some interesting papers in the 80s and '90s and stuff is making a comeback now And i think you'll start seeing a papers in two leading journals looking at labeling and the reason is i think labeling and identity and interaction theories are highly highly related to rational choice theories mm-hmm. and so choice theories have been popular for a while now we're kind of pushing the limits on those what's a logical next thing identities labeling cumulative consequences like that bad. and so they just kind of follow trends right over time and then you'll see those theories go away for a bit other theories coming back with that
0: interesting i feel like we've talked about that before but yeah just from i'm currently in my comps readings yeah. so i'm reading a lot about the historical trends of crime and what people have thought about it so it kind of maps onto what you were talking uh, about
2: the development of theories, I think, is an interesting thing, right? And so John Law has the book Criminology in the Making, which I think sort of led to the oral history project type stuff. And you kind of discuss how theories develop and how they come about and how they become popular and when they go away. And so, I mean, like a good example, too, we talk about rational choice type stuff, right? Rational choice never died. There are still always people around. You know, Ray Paternoster was around for the 80s and 90s and 2000s when rational choice seem to go away but there are still people there doing it it just didn't dominate like learning theories did and control theories did for that period so they kind of theories kind of stay in the background and they'll come back
0: up kind of on that note and also the fact that you've mentioned that it's difficult to falsify theories do you think it is possible to like completely wipe a theory out
2: no not completely and the reason is theorists, at least ones that are worth their weight and salt, always have back doors that can explain no findings, so to speak, or findings that go against negative evidence, right? There's always something that allows them to go and escape it, right? And so to completely falsify theory, I don't think is possible, right? Again, a large, large part of this is because I think a lot of theories, again, develop after the data has already come out. And so they're, before they even start, they're partially right, right? To some extent. You can falsify elements of theories, right? I think. And I mean, like a classic example is like things like Gofferson and Hershey, sort of speak, right? So you think like Calibert stuff on stability of self control, things like that, right? So there's elements of, the, of self control theory that I think you can falsify. But I don't think you're going to completely bury a theory and make it dead, right? And so, but I think though, like what is really interesting to me about Attempting to falsify theories, at least, this sort of idea of digging deeper into theories, right? And so, so often the approach to do is just put theories and like the key constructs of theories in the models and pit them against each other and then see what happens. I'm not sure that's like a, all that good of a approach because then it just lets you add to your theory, right? So, like you know, the classic example of this, I don't mean really like Whatever, at right? least look at watch this and give me for it. Is like general strength theory, right? Like put it in the models, learning and control came out. So, what did I to do? He added to his theory. He took concepts from those mm-hmm. theories and put them in and said, okay, here's my new revised general strength theory. So, general strength theory is not going away anytime soon, it's still there. Where I think real theoretical advance happens is by people reading deeper into theories and really pushing the limits of what the theories are saying and testing those. I don't know. Do you guys think it's possible to falsify theory? No, no.
0: The more and more we talk to you, the more and more we're convinced you can't.
1: <laughs> yeah, I do think at some point we need to start showing, or what was it that Hershey said? Throw them all in the ring and and see which one comes out on top. Yeah, you know I think that that's, that's kind of sort of where we should move towards, even if none of them ever you know get buried permanently, mm-hmm. but at some point we gotta find a theory that works better than others, right? Gotta yeah, cut the fat, so to speak. I think too, right, like,
2: one of the things that I think is interesting is, I think a better way in some ways of targeting a theory is to point out its logical inconsistencies and absurdities, right, is that I think is sort of more interesting and fascinating thing to do is to do it that way, because I think empirically it's hard. The other, th- The other reason that it becomes hard Falsify theories is because in criminology, we're inherently limited by observational data, right? Yeah. Which means there's always going to be a point or an argument to be made that we're missing some variable. There's something that's missing in our models, for instance, that if included would give my theory support. Right. So I, I can always, I think of like, I did a lot of work on this earlier. My seems like a long, long time ago now, but perhaps not, but think like delinquent peer influence, right? and obviously like one of the things that hershey said Hershey hershey 1969 said oh maybe there's something to this delinquent peer effect that and then he later says like basically, the biggest mistake of his career he should have never acknowledged that he might have been somewhat wrong right but yeah. every piece of research i've seen out there is suggests that peers matter that friends matter and in influence behavior but there's because we're looking at observational data all the time people can still deny it. They can say, oh, well, it's all selection still. You're not effectively controlling for selection, and we never will be able to with observational data. And so questions of spuriousness will always exist. They're easy to say, and they're hard to refute. And so for that reason, I think you're always there's always going to be some question about what's right. What's
1: That's a little depressing. <laughs> Why? <laughs> that was a little depressing. But, okay, so going back to... Rational choice. So, anytime a lot of criminologists and a lot of sociologists hear the word rational choice, they, they kind of get a little on edge. Why yeah. is that? I think there's a lot of reasons. I think
2: there's multiple. The first one is I think a lot of criminologists and sociologists confuse rational choice and deterrence as being exactly the same thing. And they're not. I think deterrence is a subset of rational choice theories that focuses on formal sanctions. And so formal sanctions may not matter all that much, right? Severity doesn't seem to matter much at all. Certainty does, although the effects aren't always that large. And so people think, okay, well, because people aren't afraid of going to jail necessarily when they are making offending decisions, therefore rational choice is wrong, right? But rational choice is much broader, I think, than deterrence in terms of rewards, informal costs, things like that. Well. And so I think that's part of it, the conclusion that or the, the idea that rational choice and the terms are, are interchangeable. They're not. The second thing is the term, well, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll, actually, I'll go in, in a different order. The second thing is I think that people who were proponents of rational choice early on were not always so friendly in their approach, I would say, right? So the classic example is Becker in 1968 when he has that, line where he says a good theory of crime can do away with theories of structure strain psychological inadequacy basically he's saying sociology and psychological theories are all bullshit you can just focus on choice right? and so it's not all that like reaching across the aisle so to speak right um, and that leads a pushback another thing that i think is the idea that of what it means to be rational it's a loaded term i think right and tom locker and i've had a lot of conversations about this like what is a rational what is rational choice is rational choice even a theory I, I don't think it is a theory so to speak i think it have some qualities but when you hear rational choice you think of what people call homo economicus right the idea that we're perfect decision makers we're essentially computers walking around with unlimited information and unlimited time and and things like that, right? And then people say, well, we know people make decisions in the heat of the moment. We know people are low in self-control, for instance, maybe they're not. Though. Things like that. And So I think the term rational is a loaded term that people invoke this notion that it's where people argue that perfect homo economicus decision makers, which they push back on. The policy implications are different too, right? So like, you think of like, if you hear about a rational choice perspective... Rational choice, for instance, to say, for whatever reason is the best theory of crime. What are the policy implications that we think? People turn to deterrence stuff, right? Right. And that has nothing to do with, or I get this all the time too, right? We're sociologists, they identify the root causes of crime and structure, neighborhoods, schools, families. And so the implications then are like, okay, let's work on improving those things. Whereas rational choice there is to be like, put up some security cameras and call it a day right things at that so questions are different
1: okay so this next question i think will serve as a nice segue to talking about your paper mm-hmm. because you do make a mention of this in your paper it, it's about general theories mm-hmm. should we have general theories of crime and what makes like for a general theory like what are the benchmarks
2: well i guess what i hear for general theory Like I think of a a crime that, or a theory that should be able to explain criminal behavior, all types of criminal behavior perhaps, different ages, different genders, whatever, right? But I think it can be different, right? It doesn't have, you can have different levels of generality in your theory. So do I think it's a good thing? Yeah, right? The less explanations we have, the better, right? less for us to memorize. So if I could teach a class on theory and just teach one theory, great, it'd be an easy semester for me. But do I think we should have them? Yes, I do. I think it makes sense? Do I think there's such thing as a one theory that explains everything all the time? No, but I that's true in pretty much any in most disciplines, right? So even like you ever read Stephen Hawking, right? His book talks about his theories. It's ironic that they made a movie called "The Theory of Everything," right? He basically says my theory's not always right, but it's a simple explanation that it can explain a lot, essentially. And so there's a theoretical world, and sometimes there's a real world, and they're not always lined up. Yes. But what else do you mean by general theory, right?
1: Right. And so, yeah, I guess one of the other things we were wondering too is, so when you say general, could you be, and I I think I can kind of guess what your answer is going to be based on what you just said, but can like a general theory just be concentrated in say one geographic location and not cut across contexts. So say here in the U S but not in England, for example. Again, there are different degrees of generality, I would say. But I
2: don't, for instance... Okay, so I, let's say you test Merton's theory, social structure, anomie in South Korea, for instance, right? And you find negative evidence for it. Do I think that that speaks... Does it speak to the generality of Merton's theory? Yes, I think it does. Does it comment, though, on the validity of Merton's theory? I would say, no, it doesn't, right? A better example, because I see a lot of this it's interesting and stuff right but like you hear people talk about things like sean mckay and whether or not socialist organization can explain crime in rural settings for instance right but i'm not sure what that means right like because sean mckay were very much interested in urban dynamics ethnic heterogeneity mobility right these sorts of things right which they're interested in doesn't really transcend in a rural environment right? so like if you does it comment on the generality of socialist organization Yes, but I wouldn't say it alters my view on the validity of social disorganization because I don't think Sean McKay had any interest in explaining a real crime. I don't think their theory was designed to explain that. And so I think it's important to keep, in, to keep context in what the theorist was trying to explain. Right? The truth of the matter is, going back to your point, is criminology is actually a very American social science. Right? I mean, look at all the theories. Most of them come from the U.S., most of them are interested in explaining invoke urban dynamics of the U.S., immigration from the U.S. into the U.S., I should say. And so the fact that it might not explain crime in Russia or China or South Korea or whatever, I think it comes to the generality, but I'm not sure it knocks on Burton or Shaw or Sutherland or things like that. I don't know, though. A good point. I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure. I, I want to be clear. I'm not like saying doing those, studying these theories in different contexts is unimportant. I think it's really important. But... I'm not sure. Like, I'd be curious if you went to Sutherland and said, "Hey, your you know, differential association, especially like if you get the macro level version, right? Merton's theory doesn't explain crime in certain countries." So if you can't, if you would think it matters all that much, I don't know.
1: Yeah, yeah, I guess for me, it comes down to like some theorists are a little assertive. because you could say with with their theories. So like, when you call something a general theory of crime and that is the name of your theory, a general theory of crime, then, like I guess to me, that has an undertone of, like this is the theory to explain them all.
2: Yeah, have you read the
1: book? <laughs> it's, it's <how> that
2: <laughs> <works>. <laughs> well, the other thing, though, I, actually, I want to comment on this, and this might ruffle some feathers, but I prefer a general theory of crime, which would and Hershey call it, than what other people call it, which is the general theory of crime, which I don't think that they invoke, and it kind of annoys me because social learning theories are much more general than self-control theory is, right? Social learning theories explain brushing your teeth and what side of the bed you sleep on, for instance, right? Like, it's a way more general but human behavioral theory than self-control is. But I understand your point. Absolutely, right? But I like bold stances, too. And so if you're going to call it, you're going to say I have a general theory of crime. go for it, right? I like it.
0: That's a lot to prove. (laughs) All right. So should we transition to your paper, Kyle?
2: If you guys want. I don't particularly like talking about my own work. So you can skip this section, too, if you want.
0: No. (laughs) You don't have to talk very much about it. But, okay. So we're going to talk about Kyle's paper that came out in Criminology last year called Testing a Rational Choice Model of Desistance – Decomposing, Changing Expectations, and Changing Utilities. It was co-authored with Matt Vogel. So Kyle, if you could just briefly introduce the paper, like in one to two sentences, just what your goal for the paper was, what you were examining, and then kind of hit us with the main findings.
2: Sure. So in general, rational choice models, I think, focus on the inputs and decision-making, and they typically break it up into two, which would be, perceptions, or we call them subjective expectations in this paper, which is anticipated consequences, costs, rewards, risks, and preferences or marginal utilities, which is how much do you weigh these factors from making decisions. And so we were interested in this paper in sort of like disentangling how much of the changes in the that occur from adolescence or we offend at a relatively high rate to adulthood is... Due to changes in perceptions of the consequences versus changes in preferences or marginal disutility or utilities. So, just a brief example of one of the type of findings is you can think of if you want to focus on arrest risk, I might decline my offending from adolescent adulthood because I increase my perceptions of arrest risk or because I become more risk averse as I get older. So, I don't like the risk anymore. It's noxious to me more now as an adult than it was when I was 15. I and mean, so, we used uh, decomposition model called the Blinder Oaxaca Decomposition Model. Thank Jeff Olmer for making me pronounce it right.
0: Um, I was wondering how it was pronounced.
2: <laughs> I gave a talk at Penn State and I presented that and I said, I don't even know how to pronounce this word. And Professor Ulmer was like, it's Oaxaca. I was like, oh, thank God. I <laughs> don't embarrass myself. <laughs> and we found out it's about equal across the two, right? So about 50% is due to changing expectations. So they perceive the rewards of crime as lower adulthood than they did in adolescence, and their risk and cost higher, but at the same time, they're also weighing things differently as they get older as well, right? So we care less about social rewards as adults than we did in adolescence. So those two things are basically changing simultaneously. So we used a model that was trying to disentangle It's kind of a counterfactual type model that said, imagine your risk perception stayed the same in adolescence from adulthood, and only your preferences changed. How much would your behavior change versus vice versa? So we found about half and half. Yeah. Awesome.
0: Sure. Were you guys surprised by that finding? So, based in theory, you know, different people have said that these subjections or subjective perspectives versus the utility, no, people have Mm -hmm. different ideas about which one of these is more important.
2: I don't know what to expect going in, to be honest. There's some research a lot that psych, Steinberg in particular, has some of his stuff, just focused more on the, the preferences and utilities changing. I guess I was more surprised at how much the expectations mattered, particularly the rewards. The rewards change a lot, right? So people Mm -hmm. think crime is fun and exciting in adolescence, and then they tend not to think it's fun in adulthood, right? Which, you know, sort of like anecdotally you might expect, but I don't know what I was expecting actually, or I can't remember at least at this point. Yeah. was a long time ago we started this, so.
0: Okay. Actually, I have an
2: interesting story about how this paper came about, right? Like, I initially thought about, I wanted to do this for my dissertation, right? Mm-hmm. Now, at the time I was writing my dissertation, Pathways was not publicly available. And I was trying to use a different data set. Uh, and it, it was just a huge pain in, in the rear end to do, right? And the other thing is, I didn't know how to model it, right? So I, didn't, I had never heard of these decomposition models.
1: Mm-hmm. And so
2: one day, I was in my office at UMSL, and I was just, like, skimming through some work and stuff. And I came across this paper by Matt Vogel on de- using a decomposition model, and I just thought, holy shit, that's exactly what I was tr- wanting to do. And so that's how Matt got involved with it, because I said, hey, I had this idea a long time ago. No idea how to model it, but I found this paper where you, you do it, and so it's kind of interesting. That's how your story how it came about, so.
0: That's how you guys came to be co-authors.
2: Yeah. Cool. He'd also hope that his office was upstairs from mine, too.
0: Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so this is kind of a general question mm-hmm. for maybe people who are listening who aren't familiar with rational choice theory. Could you explain Becker's subjective utility model and then how it relates to rational choice theory?
2: Sure. Gary Becker's interesting interesting individual, right? And so he's sort of... So expect utility theory is just the idea that, that we... It's a model of decision-making under risk, what we call it, right? So it's basically where you... Weigh the probability of an outcome, the different consequences, and the, and the outcome itself, right? And so Becker, beginning in the 60s, started writing a series of papers basically saying sociological family dynamics, get away with sociological theories, can all be economics. And crime was one of them too, right? So Becker's model is pretty simple, right? Which is why he gets criticized quite a bit. And he just basically says, crime is a choice like all economic and market behavior is a choice. We make decisions in the same way. We consider the consequences of them. We weigh the consequences. And then we choose an action that we think is going to be beneficial to us. Right. And so his model is simply, you can write it out, where you have P being the probability of arrest risk, for instance, right, multiplied by the social cost of crime, but not social, but all the costs of crime. And then you weigh that against 1 minus P, the probability of getting away with it, times the rewards to crime, right? So he uses a lot of examples of money, right? Um, so he said, okay, well, it's the economic take, right? The, Matt Suede calls it the booty from crime, you know, weighed against the potential costs and the risks associated with it. And if you think it's, the net is beneficial, and particularly if it's beneficial relative to other options for you, then you choose to engage in crime. So it's fairly simple mathematical model so how it relates to rational choices is, is rational choice, mm-hmm. right? It's the whole the whole framework of it is rational choice. Yeah. Um, and so it's a, it's a very simple model in writing it out, but it's also that also makes it easier to test, I think. He mm-hmm. has more of a direct theory, I think, than other rational choice models do. Becker won a Nobel Prize in economics, by the way, for his influence on everything, right?
0: <laughs> So are you next, then?
2: <laughs> Am
1: I next for what? Nobel Prize. prize. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah,
0: sure. Let's see that. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, so I had a question too, but you kind of answered it a little bit earlier. And it was regarding, so you really make a point to say that this is not a fully specified RCT mm-hmm. model, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I was going to ask, what would something like that look like? Or is that even a thing it should rational choice be used more of as a perspective i mean i generally view rational
2: choice in more perspective matt and i have talked about doing the follow-up paper detailing more of like a a well thought out rational choice model of desistance theory of desistance the reason that we say this is not a fully specified model is well think about rational right like mccarthy has this great paper i think where he talks about most theories invoke choice right rational choice Basically, and Becker does this, right? Becker begins at the point where preferences and expectations are already developed. You have, they already exist. So once they're there, then how do people make decisions? How do they use them? That's what rational choice is interested in. So rational choice theories don't spend a ton of time, at least in like traditional rational choice, in specifying how those things develop, right? How do expectations develop? How do preferences develop? Sociological theories and sociological rationalists spend more time doing that, right? So, so when we said we'd set a fully specified model, we sort of conclude in the paper that our theory is more consistent with Pattern and Bushway and Giordano than Samson and Lobb. But sort of hitting out with the point we talked about before, we don't ever measure what leads to changes in preferences or what leads to changes in the rewards or leads to changes in the costs, right? And so it very well could be things like marriage and employment, things that would be more consistent with Samson and Lobb approach. So that's what we meant when we said it's not a fully specified model. The other thing, though, is if you're going to... There is a rational choice model of desistance, which is Paternoster and Bushway's identity theory. It's very much an internal theory, though, right? Uh-huh. So we viewed all the unobservables, the coefficients in our models, as latent internal changes of individuals. So this is like Paternoster and Bushway's idea, right? That people don't need marriage. They don't need employment. They don't need these turning points to desist. They just need to change themselves, and they can do it, right? And so, and by doing that, it changes their preferences. What Pernas and Bushway's argument is, right? And so he has, him and Bushway, parents and Bushway have more of a developed rational choice model of assistance than we just view ours as sort of like just testing different ideas. It wasn't a theory. We also, I mean, part of it is, you know, typical publishing things. We don't want to get hammered being like, you didn't, you're missing all these qualities of a theory in your paper. Cause we're, but we want to be clear that we're not trying to say it's theory. It's his own theory. We're just testing right. different things.
0: All right, so this question might be kind of (laughs) Uh, controversial-ish, so while I was reading through the paper, it seemed to really draw on developmental criminology quite a bit Mm -hmm. and so things like cognitive changes or maturational Mm -hmm. growth. And so my question is how much influence do you think biological influences have for rational choice theory?
2: Well, in terms of brain development, probably a decent amount, right? So in the sense that you can think of, like, this is Steinberg stuff, which I think is some excellent, like, awesome stuff to read if you have a chance to read it. He talks about things. They have some, a couple of classic studies where they look at, some others as well, right? Like, fMRIs and brain activity and presence of peers, for instance, right? If you play a risky game, and when it's adolescence, the reward segment of their brain blows up, right? They like being around other people. Encouraging them to engage in deviance, but adults don't care as much, and and so there is a this element of brain activity, brain development that definitely I think plays a role in, in how people make decisions, how people make choices theoretically, yeah. It's, this is like a class, this is like an Aristotelian debate, right? And different forms and matter, so to speak, mm-hmm. right? Where if you keep going lower and lower and lower and lower, right? And you can do this, you can say, okay, well, it's not just the prefrontal cortex. It's all, it's these specific synapses that matter, right? It starts to become a bit reductionist, I think. And you never explain, You're so you start to explain the how question, but you're not explaining the why question. Mm-hmm. Kind of, right? So do I think... Biology, brain development matters, yes. Do I think rational choices you're using to integrate biology about a uh, brain? No, I don't. I think that they're fine. Acknowledging it and moving on. Yes, brain development matters.
0: I was curious how you would answer it just based off of other conversations on kind of biosocial type things.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No. I don't know.
0: All right. So, one more question about the paper, but not really about the paper. So, Jose and I both loved how you started the literature review with an equation. A simple equation, but an equation. And so, you know, a lot of grad students that I've talked to and even some faculty that I've talked to struggle reading papers with a lot of equations. Mm -hmm. So we're just curious if you have any advice to people who are trying to either start or continue reading papers with tons of equations
2: Sure equations aren't that complicated, right? It's just it's learning a new language essentially, right? And so Typically at most of the action in equations comes from the subscripts, right? So sometimes it's just helpful to point those out and say okay what's it saying right so like in our I can't I don't exactly remember did we start out with a Becker equation or just like a, the regression equation?
1: Yeah I think it was the Re-
2: Becker equation. Okay. So imagine like in a regression equation right you add an I, you add an T, and saying okay they're saying this varies over individuals across individuals and it varies over time. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes like I think people people psych themselves out with equations. Right. They see it and they think I'll never understand this. But when you really break it down, it's not as complicated as you think, right? And so it's one of those things too, right, where practice, right? I had the advantage of uh, being at Maryland at a time when it was very, very stats heavy. And so one of my advisors who's now my colleague, Tom Locker, right, He would I'd go to his office and at the time, Tom was just dabbling in criminology. And so I'd go to him and I'd say, hey, I have this, th- this idea. I'm testing this theory and here's my idea. And Tom would say, oh, write it in an equation for me. Because right? <laughs> that's the way that he thinks, right? Yeah. And I had to, right? So I had to go back to my office and write an equation. And then he would often, I was wrong at times. And he said, oh, I think, I think you're missing this and you're doing this wrong. And so just practice, right? Practice reading, practice trying to figure out what they're saying. I think that they're not, it's not as difficult as people think it is, right? The other thing though too, is I actually, I was having a conversation with somebody recently about this is, one of the reasons I like rational choice models is because everything is very easily written in an equation. Not easily, but it can be. Mm -hmm. Which makes it easy for me to figure out how to test the theory. So many theories in in the social sciences can be so complex that I'm not sure you could write it in an equation. And I like the simplicity of equations, to be honest. Perhaps that sounds a bit ironic since you started out by saying how complicated they are. But just practice. Practice reading, practice. If there's somebody in your apartment, too, that writes, that's their style and stuff, Ask them for advice, right? Say, hey, I'm trying to figure this out. Here's this equation, that a scholar put a paper, I'm trying to make sure I dissect and understand it. Mm-hmm. Have them break it down for you. So equations aren't scary, right? People, it's just like stats in general. People go in thinking stats are scary and they psych themselves out, stats. But really like stats is intuitive in a lot of ways. And equations can be as well. It's just practice. I you think
0: you're onto something with the subscripts and superscripts that that makes yeah. it more terrifying to look at for a lot of people.
2: Yeah, but that's where everything is, right? Yeah, right. And it's just breaking it down, right? Like often, like you see a lot of them, and you think, "Oh my god!" Like, but you guys all know, like what happened. Like if there's a t on variable in your model, that means that it varies over time, right? right. Or what time point is measured, or whatever, right? It's the same thing. It's just overcoming your fears and trying to conquer it right and so but to be honest with you i mean most most people don't know how to read equations mm-hmm. um there is that like this stuff i think it was done by swedish or some some economists and stuff where they put a bunch of bogus equations in papers and set them off for review and they sent them out to all these different disciplines and the acceptance rate was always higher in papers that had equations really? then, even though the equations were total nonsense they didn't actually mean anything, right? The only people who caught on were the mathematicians the physicists. Everybody else was like, oh, they must, they must know what they're doing because there's equations in the paper. But just try to read them and break them down.
1: It's just practicing. Yeah. That's all it is. So don't be afraid of stats and equations. <laughs> okay, then. Time for some myth-busting.
2: <laughs> Here's the other thing, though, too, for me, about going back to equations. I don't like... I don't. Like, I usually get into this with people at Amazon, they like a lot of people there like this is i don't like the diagrams i always think if you need to draw it out in a diagram it's too complicated of a question there's too much going on at this point as like maybe some mediation models type stuff but when you have like things going all over the place i'm too slow on the uptake to understand that stuff
0: that kind of fits in with our first myth okay actually yeah complexity is a quality of a good theory
2: yeah i think that's a big time myth you hear it all the time, I think, a lot of people. The general argument seems to be human behavior is complex and therefore requires a complex explanation. And then in turn, we seem to think that complexity is a good thing, a good quality of a theory. I disagree. I think simplicity is one of the best qualities of a theory. More simple than the explanation. I mean, like, think about like, something like Gofferson and Hershey, right? You can like that theory, I don't... There's so much I don't like about the theory. And that's an explanation. As someone who does pure stuff, and, but it's so easy to understand. right? You can explain it to your colloquially as people say often, to your grandma at Thanksgiving. Right? It's so easy. But other theories become so complicated that I wouldn't know how to test the theory, mm-hmm. um, which I don't think is a good quality. Right? And then going back to our original our initial conversation, it becomes unfalsifiable.
1: Yeah, oh,
0: that's true.
1: I don't know. Do you guys like complexity? No, we were hearing it quite a bit this last semester from one of our classes and pretty much exactly what you were saying. Human behavior is complex, therefore it requires a complex explanation. And so we're looking at some of these theories that if I if never saw the original diagram from the person that came up with the theory and you told me, to, okay, here's the theory in words, right? Like here's an article or a chapter on the theory, now draw it out. I'd have no idea where to start. Yeah. I think too, I see this all the time,
2: where I'll read papers of a theory, even ones that I, I don't think are, that, are as complicated, it's still complicated, but in the way that they draw a theory out is totally different than the way I would draw it, out, mm. right? And so like, to me, that's, here's like, I always tell this, I'm sure I've told this to you guys before, right? Um, and it's the same thing like dissertations right? Is the worst thing that someone can say, the worst review I can give you on a paper, on a registration paper is I don't understand it. Right. Yeah. I would rather understand it and disagree with you entirely and say, okay, I know what you're, I totally get what you're saying. I think you're fundamentally wrong for X reasons. But if I understand it, at least I've like gotten that far. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause I'd rather understand what you're trying to say and disagree then agree with something that is not what you're trying to say from we get go. <laughs> and so, yeah, so I don't know. I like, some, I, I'm just, I don't know. I'm simple minded. I'm not that smart, but I prefer simple theories that just get
0: to the point. Yeah. I mean, I also think it's interesting going back to the class that Jose and I were in when we were being shown these really complex models, it was never that you can test the, like the whole theory. It was, you had to mm-hmm. test, Parts of the theory at a time and then put them together to get to the whole theory, which. That to
1: me never quite made sense. I don't know how you feel about that, Kyle, but I tend to not like the theory that, yeah, you can only test this little piece and then you gotta test this other little piece. Like, there's no way for you to test the whole theory. Yeah.
2: I mean, I'm not sure you can ever test the whole thing of most theories, right? There's some exceptions, obviously, Mm -hmm. but there are some theories where i don't even know where to begin yeah the test right there's some theories of crime that out of the relationships between the different constructs right. that are supposedly important and so you know i was i was having this conversation recently is there's not enough in criminology i think in sociology too of people just laying out a the theory in a the model right whether it's an equation or a diagram just laying it out and saying here's what my theory is here's all these things here's the causal sequencing but like I said, I prefer simplicity. Mm-hmm. I think it's, we should be striving. I think simplicity is something that sh- should be looked up to, not something that should be looked down on, even when it comes to human behavior.
0: <laughs>
2: so, I think sometimes, I think the complexity of human behavior sometimes is overstated as well.
0: Right. Are we really that complex?
2: <laughs> I do Do you guys watch Westworld?
0: Yeah.
2: Right, they had like, the whole thing. You know, it was like, oh yeah, we thought we were collecting all this data on humans, thinking we would take all this work to reproduce their behavior, but really, it's really simple. They're all driven by a few things. So. Yeah. Which I think, you know, obviously not always true, but there's an element of truth to it, I think.
0: Right. So,
2: there's my daily acknowledgement that Ed Har- anything involving Ed Harris is right.
0: <laughs> and that you like watch TV and stuff. I
2: do
1: watch TV. I watch yeah. Yeah. too much, probably. <laughs> <laughs>
0: all right.
1: What else? The other one is that the assumptions of theories are unimportant and they just stagnate theory. Yeah. I
2: wholly disagree with that. This has come up a few times over history in criminology, right? It's come up recently in an article where somebody was making the the argument that who cares about assumptions? They're unimportant. They delay growth and stuff. But my view is the assumptions of theory are the theory itself. It's everything. Right, the implicit underlying: if you think there's consensus or conflict, if you think humans are inherently selfish, inherently social, or a term I hate but gets perpetuated all the time, blank slates—whatever the hell that means—I mm-hmm. don't know. I don't know anyone who argues for blank slates except for maybe Watson. But this idea, right—that's what you're trying to explain. right? Where does the crime theory is all about? Where does the motivation for crime or conformity come from? And that's all the assumptions of theories. And so, yeah, people. Even if you want to pretend the assumptions aren't there, they are still there, right? (laughs) So you can, it's still in in the background somewhere. And those are the most, you know, like people talk about propositions of theories and how they're important, right? There's two types of propositions, right? The explicit ones and the implicit ones. And the implicit ones are the most dangerous ones, the most important ones, right? Kornhauser talked about that in her work. So they're not going away, they're there. Plus, isn't it fun to argue a (laughs) theory? This it is it like such like a Maryland thing when you're in grad school. We'd all just go to the bar and people would just argue about theory for four hours straight. <laughs> really? Oh, yeah. It was all the time. But it was all based on assumptions, right? Yeah. That's what you're arguing. Because you no know one's going to disagree that males commit more crime than females, right? And so you argue, okay, well, does the motivation to commit crime need to be explained or not? Right. That's what's fun arguing. It's not a new argument either, right? No. It's been ancient Greece day
0: one <laughs> <laughs> you know, feel, Greece, when they were coming up with crim theory <laughs>
2: <laughs> you'd be surprised, you'd be really? surprised right? you- I mean like I think you hear all the time right people talking about like oh, sociology not liking criminology for some reason or right? a criminologist and right? criminology is like the fundamental sociology question It's just it's all about social order mm-hmm. right and so it's essentially how do society exist why do people follow rules that's where sociology begins, and that's what criminology is trying to answer. And so, if you go back in time, yeah, all these old ancient pe- Greek people are trying to answer that question like, about social order. So, right?
1: yeah. So, Plato, the father of criminology. Hey, you, you missing Plato in the fall, but
2: yeah, it's it's there. So, it's not a new question. Plus, arguing is fun, right? Do you guys ever? For those of you who haven't read Hershey's "Separate and Unequal is Better," right? He talks about how why we should integrate theories. Mm-hmm. and his last point, I believe it's that paper. His last point is, also it just makes it more fun, right? Like, why is crimp theory more interesting than other subfields of sociology? It's because we argue about what most people would think are pointless things, but it makes it interesting and fun to read and fun to debate.
0: Too bad you can't argue with Hershey.
2: <laughs> oh, I wouldn't even dare. I
1: know. <laughs> uh, oh, <man. laughs>
2: dare.
1: All right. Well, we've sort of come to the end of our episode. I thank you again, Kyle, for joining us. Yeah, uh, thanks, is, there, is there anything that you'd like to plug? Anything that people should look out for in the near future? Any new papers? No. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> Except you've been more productive in COVID than you would have been otherwise. I, so I have been. More productive, yeah. He's I don't just modest to say.
2: Well I mean the the whole reason again ir- irony here the whole reason I've been more productive is because I haven't had you two come around to annoy me at the office <laughs> so a uh, but yeah, here I am taking an hour out of a Friday taking an hour out of a Friday where <laughs> no I'm not making a plug so.
1: and where can people find you you're not on Twitter I don't tweet I don't any well, I have a Facebook, but I don't use it very often. You have a Google Scholar.
0: And an email.
2: Yeah, you can email me. My email's on the website. Don't contact me on social media. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He uh, so, will never yeah.
0: respond to you.
2: <laughs> if you want to find me, email me. Or you can come to Colorado. Find me uh there so you know email yeah email know the best thing to reach the best place to reach me so you guys know i'm not i'm not technologically savvy so i'm still working out social media stuff so, i think i still have, i think i still have a myspace page what
0: somewhere. yeah so
2: you probably you probably like find it somewhere and <laughs> some song will come on as you open the page
0: <laughs> will it be good music or will you be embarrassed by it
2: <laughs> i'm always embarrassed by it <laughs> It's not going to be like, like Beethoven or anything, right? So, it's, like, it's probably like some Casey and JoJo or who yes, else. Casey and JoJo's good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah.
0: All right. Thanks, Kyle.
2: Yeah, thanks for good having time. me on. It was fun.